Welcome to Inside My Canoe Head, a podcast about self-reliance and building a more resilient lifestyle. Hang on and join us for your latest emergency preparedness information, building a better you in the face of life's disruptions, and all those other crazy stuff that's driving us nuts in today's world. I'm your host, Jeff. Let's get at it. All right, everyone, welcome back. And this is episode 17 of Inside My Canoe Head. It's the second part of our short series on this winter is going to be hard. You might hear a bit of an echo in the background. We've changed the studio location today. We are now broadcasting from a more, shall we say, open area. And uh, we're going to try this for this episode. We're going to try to take away the background and noise as much as possible. And we'll see how it comes out. Your comments are obviously most welcome. We do everything we can around here to make your enjoyment Uh, your experience enjoyable. All right. So first and foremost, I want to shout out to some of my new listeners in Fallingbrook, Ontario, Victoria, BC, Swindon, England. Thank you very much. Toronto, Prairie Village, Kansas, Boardman, Oregon, North Shores, Michigan, and Columbus, Ohio. In Ohio, you have an interesting little conversation between two gentlemen tomorrow night that seems to be fairly important. So we'll see how that goes. But we want to talk today about scenarios. The first part of this two-part episode was on this winter is going to be hard. And I spent some time talking about the specific things that are going to make this winter hard. The the high rate of incidence of influenza combined with COVID-19. The shock that that's going to put on the healthcare system. And as well as the issues that we're going to have when it comes to the U.S. election and how that is going to radiate itself out into the rest of the world. And I, and I really don't care what side of the, uh, the aisle you're on as the U.S. refers to it, whether you're left-wing, right-wing, conservative, liberal, authoritarian, libertarian, or where you are on the matrix, everybody has to understand. And I think most are aware at this point that anything short of a massive and decisive victory in one way or another is going to lead to conflict and unrest. Now, I do not subscribe to those tinfoil hat theorists that believe the United States of America is going to go into a second civil war. However, what there will be is regions of the country that will not accept the results Uh, They really don't have a choice. It is the way the system works. Uh, The Supreme Court of the United States of America will likely decide in the end, kind of like they did in 2000 between Bush and Gore, as to who will be the next president, like it or lump it. That's the way it will go. But irrespective of who wins, there will be regions of the country that for in some way, shape or form will fail to recognize the winner of the election as determined by the Supreme Court. And therefore, you will have divisions. How deep those divisions go, I don't know. Um, I'll give you this. I follow a number of uh, blogs, in, especially in Oregon, because it seems to be the one part of the United States that is having the highest rate of violence and conflict during this time uh, of social justice issues, as well as the U.S. Uh, election that's coming up. And one blog poster, who I'll remain nameless, it doesn't matter, and I, and I follow an individual for a while, and I look at their way they phrase things, 
the the way they express uh, their viewpoints and the evidence that they use to support their viewpoints to determine whether they're a wingnut or they're actually somebody with a little bit of smarts and some education who've come to a concluding point from what they observe. And this one individual, I'll tell the initials of TR, this individual has basically, and I'll paraphrase what he said in a blog post four days ago. He said, it's ironic that the protesters don't understand that the very people they're throwing rocks and bottles at and fighting with, the police, are the ones that are that are keeping them safe. And his point was, is that there is a significant force ready to end the protest should the police withdraw their protection of the protesters. And he didn't mean it as a threat. He basically says that there is sufficient people in the state of Oregon who have had enough and are waiting for the opportunity for the police to withdraw protection of the protesters, and then they will step in and they will end the protest. Now, I don't think it's going to be large-scale bloodshed or anything along that route, but what I do believe will happen is these individuals will step in and use coordinated tactics and essentially dislodge and disrupt and end any organized protest on a social justice basis. The danger of that is, is we all know that that can spiral out of control. And it, all it has to happen is in one place in the United States of America. And then you will see copycat groups around the U.S. say, okay, somebody has broken the glass ceiling and the citizens are going to stand up and take back the safety and security of their place and they will not tolerate protests for any reason whatsoever that causes damage and disruption. And you see in some parts of the United States, Idaho and other parts where open carry Second Amendment was exercised at the very beginning and these protests simply did not have an opportunity to occupy any space because they were met with coordinated and the presentation of overwhelming force uh, and therefore I think I, I don't agree whether that works or not it's just a statement of reality and what could happen so that's the important the United States of America election I don't think we can disregard that but when we look around the world uh, we saw this week that Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, have gotten back into a conflict and a lot of people don't understand, like, why does that matter? Well, th the simple part of it is, is that Armenia has a security pact with Russia. And if Armenia calls in Russian aid and Putin uh, agrees because he will, because he very much loves disruptive activities, you will start seeing a Russian and Azerbaijan conflict. That is like an elephant and a mouse getting into a bar fight. Uh, that is over very, very quick, and it'll be very, very brutal. And that type of exercise on the world stage, we see happening around the world. We, For example, you have conflicts in the Yemen, and why people ask, why does Saudi Arabia count, carry about the, the Yemen? Well, let's be frank. The Saudi Arabian Air Force needs a great deal of practice in com and combating ground targetry. The reason it does is because the largest threat to Saudi Arabia is a ground-based invasion from Iran through southern Iraq and around the peninsula. They don't have the seaborne capability to bring their army across the Persian Gulf. So the, there's about 400 to 450 kilometers of desert, open blank desert, before built-up areas in Saudi Arabia. 
and the only hope of Saudi Arabia defending against an Iranian uh, ground evasion is that they will utilize air power. So Saudi Arabia is mainly in the fight in Yemen because they need to get a great deal of practice uh, for their pilots in ground warfare. But of course, you can't say that kind of stuff up front. The UAE, who is also fighting with Saudi Arabia, in fact, has the deadliest air force in the Persian Gulf. They are by far the best. Um, they're not quite at the level of the Iranian, or sorry, the uh, Israeli Air Force, but they are fanatically, incredibly capable um, Air Force there. So you never discount these type of things. And the reason I bring that up is uh, simply a reminder that the world around us is slightly bit on fire. And in all these international conflicts, and in understanding what each one of them means is important. But when we look at your situation here in North America and around the world, wherever you may be, you have to look at events that happen in your region. So, you know, Azerbaijan and Armenia may not affect you, but if you're in Ukraine, it will affect you because now Putin has another avenue open to practice his disruption tactics. If you are in North Africa, then the Yemen conflict is hugely important to you as well as the, you know, the beginning maybe of a new Arab Spring. Nobody's certain in, in Egypt, but and of course, here in North America, we have the U.S. election and we have across the entire world, the COVID pandemic. So today what we're going to do is we're going to go over uh, a quick recap of things that are incredibly important to you. And then I'm going to go through two scenarios, uh, those scenarios that may affect you wherever you are in the world. First of all, the recap. Number one foundational question in emergency preparedness is who is responsible for your outcomes? Are you a victim? Does everything happen to you? Do you blame everybody around you for your circumstances? You know, I would have done this, but this happened. I would have been a great guy, but this happened. You know, I would have been successful, but this happened. You know, everything else happens to you, and therefore you have nothing but excuses. Remember, excuses are just weakness. If you look at your vulnerabilities, remember, it's up to you to understand truly your vulnerabilities. And a lot of people don't like to talk that public, and I completely understand it. If you have family vulnerabilities, they're not something to hide. It's something that you have to understand. For example, if you have a, a family member who obviously you care very much about, and they're on a certain type of medication, uh, that medication becomes a vulnerability. Because if that no longer becomes available, what happens to your family member? That now influences everything else that you can do. If you have a family member who has significant mental health injuries, they might have post-traumatic stress disorder, major depression, bipolar, that affects how you are going to be able to conduct activities, both in the emergency preparedness context, but also in, in life in general. If you have an elderly member or a member of your family that has mobility issues, for example, a member of your family is in a wheelchair, somebody uses a walker, or requires significant assistance to get around. Again, Think about how you're going to bug out, how you're going to move about, how you're going to get things done. All of these things are considered vulnerabilities. And one of the major ones that I did mention in previous episodes is your financial. If you are a family that relies on a singular income, or I'd even argue two principal incomes, as your form of financial security, those are vulnerabilities. And the reason being is, is if that disappears, unless you have significant or other multiple lines of income that support you, taking away your principal source of income and not replacing it with something is a vulnerability. And that's why we talk about in, in earlier episodes on, on how to become 
uh, more resilient. We center on the fact that you need a minimum of three lines of income in your family and ideally five. Now remember, some of those lines of income can be very small. They don't have to be large. Some of them could just be, you know, I like to refinish furniture on the weekends. I sell it. I might get $400 a month total for my work, but that $400 is a line of income. And if you have three of those, you now have $1,200. And $1,200 extra line of income on top of your regular um, income source that you have from your job can be incredibly effective at being that cushion that you need in between disruptive events that can occur. So understanding all of these vulnerabilities are incredibly important. And if you not sure what a vulnerability is, thinking of it as the antonym to resilience. So if you vulnerability is increased, your resilience is lowered. If you increase your resilience through taking some precautionary measures, you therefore reduce your vulnerability. So they work in opposite directions. They are negatively correlated and therefore uh, two concepts that are incredibly important for you to understand. Understanding the threats that sit around you. And threats can be, you know, I'm not talking, you know, people Christian kicking down your doors and a ridiculous tinfoil hat, stuff like that. I just mean uh, from natural man-made disasters in your specific area where your family is located, where you live. California is on fire, but if you're not in California and you're not in a wildfire zone, then you need not spend any time worrying about a wildfire. However, if you are in a tornado alley, uh, if you're on the coast and susceptible to hurricanes, if you're on a known fault line for earthquakes, these are all things you need to become aware of. Industrial facilities that may have accidents around you, those type of things that you need to make sure that you are aware of. And just remember, as you're doing any type of analysis, individual emergency preparedness is about you, your family, and the ones you love. And the point of that is, is that center on you, your house, not necessarily what might be happening to the rest of the world. That's important information. But you're concerned about your own individual immediate area. And lastly, it, it is about your community. Your community and people, we are part of a bigger system. Humans are gregarious. We are more successful in every single piece of literature and anecdotal evidence and gray literature that is out there will tell you. Creating a community of people that you care about and that you can rely upon around you is always going to pay huge dividends in times of disruption. In social science, it's called social capital. It's basically building the bonds between you and the people around you. In the prepper world, in the survivalist world, they call them prepper groups and survival groups. They're all going to run off in the woods together. You may not believe in that concept, but they're actually following psychology and sociology and that they're building social capital which means they have a group of like-minded individuals who they know they can rely on in times of disruption so those are all very important and for scenarios we're going to talk about the most likely and the most dangerous they are at the both ends of a spectrum and by looking at those two possibilities of what could happen to you and how to deal with it you capture everything that could be somewhere in the middle so that's the point of picking those two the first one we're going to pick most likely and we're going to discuss is a COVID lockdown. We've been through it. Yes, we have been through it. However, if you look at the numbers associated with a potential second wave and human activity as of now, it is likely to be much worse. Now, I am a scientist. I am a social scientist. I believe in science and not conjecture and a whole bunch of wild tinfoil hat solutions to it all. However, what we are saying is very clear. 
the cases of COVID-19 in North America, or especially in Canada where I live, are starting to grow, and they will continue to grow almost exponentially because of the onset of the fall. And it's called a second wave. You can believe it, you don't believe it, you can argue, I don't care. The point being is, is that the number of incidents are going to be on the rise. The cases are going to be on the rise. And as I said in the last episode, they're going to start to affect the availability of labor. What that is going to do is it is going to entice the government, and I mean entice because it's not necessary, but it's going to entice the government to start putting more restrictions. And they'll start stepping into areas that you may call your liberty and your freedom of movement. Why does that matter? Well, that becomes more difficult in the winter months. It significantly does. It is colder outside. It is messier outside. You start to see less um, snowplow drivers for, for the most simplistic analysis available that are, that are going to be on the road. So the frequency by which the snow is cleared off your streets goes down. The frequency by which you have, can access any services from anyone starts to go down. So it's less of a question of that things won't be available. It is more a question of that things will take far more effort, both physically and time-wise, for you to access services. And that can be everything from grocery stores to banks to everything else that you will do will take a significant more period of time. If you have a vulnerability in your family related to medical, I most certainly can foresee a situation where then anything short of an intimate life-threatening injury, you will simply not have access to the medical system. You can show up at an emergency room with flu-like symptoms and you'll be told to wait out in your car and you will be texted when they can see you and it might be 24 hours or more because of the regular influenza cases that will be showing up. So imagine that you have an elderly member of your family who has had significant influenza problems. You're not sure if it's COVID-19 or not. You can't get them a test. So you try to get your doctor's office. You can't get an appointment for three weeks. And the emergency room is 24 hours in your car. Think about that. That's what the most likely issue is going to be. And how does that affect your emergency preparedness? It's huge. It's huge. If you look at all of the things that you do in a day, and every one of them is going to take exponentially more. I can tell you seriously, going to the grocery store might be a day-long event. You might wait an hour and a half outside to get in, in the winter. And then you might wait an hour to two hours in a lineup to check out. And this is going to be normalcy. This is going to be considered normal in your society and you start to see everything like that slow down we used to live in a society where you know where everything was click click and go click and go everything would show up well imagine a society where that can't happen now you're looking at this really really slow down of society everything you want to do takes exponentially longer labor supply crashes down now imagine that you need public transit. Imagine you have transportation issues. Start to look at your critical infrastructure elements that support your society and start to see a slowdown in those. We've talked about the medical. We've talked about access to retail stores, food stores, and things like that. We looked at the transportation where everything will just be exponentially slower. And you start to look at government programs. If governments are your source of income through subsidized elements that come into your bank account 
um, you're going to have to make sure that those keep going. And I mean that from the perspective of you can't sit back and wait for the government to c- decide that, you know, oh boy, we, we extended our benefits to February, but February is still bad, so we're going to extend them another four months because nobody's working. You're assuming that the government is going to continue to pay your bills for you. That is exceptionally dangerous. Uh, I said in my last episode, and I, every once in a while and inside my canoe head, I will jump up on a soapbox and challenge you to look at yourself in the mirror and I'll call you out. And again, this is one of those times, like literally, if you've been sitting around since March waiting for your old job to come back and you're sitting on government assistance and now you're angry that the government assistance may be running out, that's nobody's fault but yourself. You need to take individual responsibility for your outcomes and your financial security. So yeah, absolutely. When the pandemic hit and the government locked everything down, they did have a responsibility to issue emergency payments and both the U.S. and the Canadian government did a great job. But during that time, it was your responsibility to secure alternate forms of income. It was your responsibility to lay a plan for the future. It was not your job to sit at home and just wait it out and hoping that your old job would come back. Now, a lot of people took that avenue and here you are. Congratulations. You made this bed. So how do you get out of it? Well, there's a lot of ways to look at alternate forms of income. We've talked about it a couple of times here, but you have to be able to consider that the future for the COVID lockdowns is going to be the same probably until 2022. Now, I said this before to somebody and they give me this long, hard look, 2022, I'm suddenly, absolutely. If you're talking about 335 million Americans and you're talking about 37 million Canadians and you want to produce a flu vaccine, Uh, that gets through the phase three trials and starts vaccinating. When you're looking at total society level vaccination dosage issuing, you're looking at earliest for the doses to be manufactured uh, is the fall of 2021. However, the fall of 2021 is going to be the beginning of another influenza period. Remember, influenza comes, starts in the fall, goes through the winter. It's going to be exceptionally difficult and an exceptional long time that nobody is considering to actually deliver that vaccine and vaccinate people. When you consider all the PPE requirements that are they're going to have to be done. I live in a city of a million people. Do you know how long it'll take to get a million people vaccinated? You're talking six to nine months, and that's this city alone. So if you are thinking that this COVID is going to go away any time before 2022, you're wrong. You need to consider this COVID lockdown and the slowdown effect it's going to have and the availability of labor and the influences on your job and your financial aspects now. You need to get a handle on that and accept it as reality and learn to live with it and excel in the middle of it because that's your job to and it's thriving. We want to thrive and not just survive in a pandemic or any other disruption. And that's why we believe in individual emergency preparedness is, is you want to be able to be the one who's driving the ship while everybody else is swimming around trying to figure out where they're going to go. Don't tread water, start the front crawl and start getting it done. This is 2022 folks. I study it. I have many, many academic colleagues that are deeply looking into the social and economic challenges associated with COVID-19. I read all the medical research. I'm not BSing you here. I'm telling you, if you want to think of it from an individual emergency preparedness perspective and be prepared for what is coming, 
You need to think out to 2022 and all of your life events and everything that is planned until then and get ready to live in this world where everything is just exponentially harder to get done. You'll likely get it done. It'll just take a significant longer period of time. And that is your most likely scenario. And it'll probably start by the mid of October. Uh, we have a standing bet here in, in my household and a number of my friends in this industry as to how long before the entire school system shuts down in the province of Ontario where I live. I'm betting Halloween. Uh, other people think earlier, but I think we'll make it to Halloween before the entire school system actually collapses in upon itself. And that is simply because um, they need to keep it open because obviously uh, parents with young school-aged children who need to go somewhere to work and don't have any alternative require the school system to provide them government-run childcare, And that's just the way it is. I mean, call it what you will. You'll disagree with that statement. It doesn't bother me in the least. The point being is that if you shut down schools, all those kids got to go home. And we live in a society now where parents are not uh, have not created lives where they're capable of providing care for their children during the day uh, because they're off at work. And fair enough, I'm not arguing with that, but that's the state. That's why the schools will have to stay open, but I don't think they'll make it much past 31st October before the system come glasses in upon itself. So that's the most likely, and I spend a little bit more time on that because it is the most likely. It, it is likely what is to happen, and it's probably going to happen in a very short order. We see exponential growth in the Canadian provinces of Ontario, Quebec, and elsewhere, and you can deny it. You can stick your head in the sand, but folks, 2022 is when we will start to talk about the emergence from COVID-19 the most dangerous scenario this is the one that is the most unlikely but the most dangerous and the reason we always look at this is because it is the far right extreme of what could happen and for this i've chosen the one most disruptive thing that can happen to an individual is forced evacuation that's because individual emergency preparedness as we teach it and individual emergency preparedness even as the tinfoil hat people talk about it is all about staying safe in your home, surrounded by everything you own, in a secure place that you love and you cherish, surrounded by the people that you care the most about, living the life that you can as best you can in whatever the disruption it is. The most dangerous thing that could happen is something forcing you to leave. Now, I don't care what it is. I believe in disaster impact reduction, not disaster risk reduction. DIR talks about the fact that you have an impact on your life and it really cares not why that impact has occurred. So we're going to focus on the fact that you have to evacuate. Your individual analysis of threats in your area will probably give you a good idea of why that could happen. But now let's talk about evacuation. Evacuation is by definition the forced removal uh, against your choice and your desire from your residence to some alternate location that you may or may not have planned due to circumstances beyond your control. You have just been told that you must leave your house. Now, you may get 24 hours notice. You may get 24 minutes notice. I'm not sure. Plan for the worst. Very short notice. Time to leave your house. That year's worth of food supply that you spent all that money on in the basement, it has now become useless because you can't pack it into your car and go. Now in a forced evacuation, 
we talked about evacuation in a completely separate episode and we went incredibly in depth in that. The point being is that if somebody leans out to you and says, we th- we're thinking about putting a voluntary evacuation recommendation in an area, that is your key and your time to go. That's when you go. Don't think about it. Pack your stuff. Take the time. Pack everything you need. Secure the residence and get out. Because if you wait to the mandatory evacuation time frame, you are going to be stuck in the middle, trapped with a whole bunch of people on the roads or you're going to have one of those disastrous experiences like you see in California of families driving through wildfires lapping at the side of their vehicle putting their lives at danger and not everybody makes it out of those so when you are given even the slightest hint that an evacuation may be coming your way you at least make the preparations and packing all the necessary equipment but my and other experts will always give you the recommendation that when somebody says evacuate voluntarily that's your time to go because the roads won't be crowded. You'll actually be able to find a motel 300 miles away because the, the hordes have not left to come take them all. And then you'll have a secure place to sit and stay. So that's the first and foremost. The second is, is how are you prepared for that? Well, again, the previous episode in evacuations is there. Think about it this way. There are two types. If you look at a short notice evacuation, if you stand in your hallway of your home with a cup of coffee in your hand and have a look around, if somebody told you you had to leave in 30 minutes, what would you grab? Now think about how you would grab that. Now contrast that with what you would like to take. That question, and you have to reflect on that because some people don't care about a lot of physical stuff and it's irrelevant they could go in five minutes with everything that matters and the rest could burn and they couldn't care less the point being is is that's the personal exercise you have to go through compare if somebody gave you 30 minutes time would you be able to pack everything that you would want to take or not and if not then the difference is what you have to prepack. Now, that is going to be different for every single family, and that's why it's difficult to lay out, pack these seven things, pack these 12 things, and there are lots and lots of websites out there and YouTube channels that talk about bug-out bags and inch bags. The acronym stands for I'm Never Coming Home and various other things like that. And the funny part, I made a joke about this in the evacuation podcast, is that, uh, you know, these bug-out bags and these guys that talk about inch bags say put all the survival gear in there and and all this bushcrafting stuff and that's great and whatever and then you evacuate when you in fact all you're doing is you're going 300 miles down the road and you're going to the hilton and i'm telling you to bring your hilton rewards card and they're telling you to bring all this survival bushcraft equipment and what are you going to do you're going to show up at a hilton with a whole bunch of fire starters axes saws tarps uh and all this other cutting tools and everything else And you're going to be looking around going, hmm, I know how to do a figure Y trap, but it's kind of hard to put a food trap in the middle of the hallway of the Hilton. So folks, be serious about evacuation from the perspective of where are you going to go? And the key to successful evacuation is always pre-planning. That's what we do in individual emergency preparedness. Don't wait for an evacuation situation to walk yourself through what you're most likely going to do and where you're going to go. Now is the time when there is no evacuation order and no threat present to go through that process. Where am I going to go? And then if I can't get there, what is my alternate location? That plan will detail what you take with you beyond the, the you know the personal things the, the 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 memories and all that other stuff you're going to want to take with you i'm talking about the practical things that you're going to take with you 
um, where you're going to go will determine that. Now, bushcraft stuff is never a bad idea, and I always carry a bag of it because you never know what life is going to throw at you. But the reality of evacuation is if you're planning to go to a, a family farm or a cottage or some other place that is outside of what that likely threat is going to influence, then then maybe you throw a couple extra boxes of stuff there ahead of time so that you don't have to worry about packing this car massively to the hilts with everything that you have that you pre-position things and where you're planning to go that is a great idea that you know in the industry they call them caches but that's more people who bury stuff in the woods and have a power to do that Uh, but the reality is is the evacuation is going to force you to go so think about uh, if you've been forced to go where you're going to go now you know where you're going to go Figure out how you're going to get there. Now, if that's your car, that's great. That's what 90% of the people are going to be. But do you have enough gas in your car? Do you need to refuel on the way? And this is the one thing I do really, really suggest in preparation is if you need to refuel or you need another 20 liters of gasoline to get there, buy it beforehand and put it in your garage. And the reason being is, It's going to be exceptionally difficult in times of disruption to go to a fuel source en route. If you are traveling a route that many others are going to travel, they may be out of fuel. The lineups may be long, delaying your whole evacuation plan, potentially increasing the risk profile that you're facing. So think think through that. So if you're going to, you know where you're going to go, you know you're going to have to get there. You got the extra gas to get there. And so you figure out, you know, if you get 30, day, 30 minutes notice to go, can you pack what you need to do, have your preposition, your supplies? And now you've actually gone through, because that's the biggest, most challenging thing in an individual emergency preparedness is going through that threats. You know, if I have to evacuate, which is obviously the most dangerous situation for anybody because it dislodges them from their life and their plan, you need to know where you're going, how you're going to get there, and your alternate to that. And you need to make the necessary preparations to make that effective and then make a good decision on when it's time to go. You also have to consider the vulnerabilities you have, how you're going to deal with those vulnerabilities and where you're going to go is make sure that there's nothing in that receiving area that could cause you to dislodge and evacuate again. The point of the whole matter in facing evacuation is that it is going to be difficult to coordinate and it's the most dangerous, not because just because you're, you're leaving your house. It's because if it happens in a notice when your family is not together, when your family is dispersed and they're doing their regular lives around the city or wherever you may be, how are you intending to get them back together? Who's doing what? How, if they have to meet you in an alternate source, do you have that already uh, figured out as a family or all this planned? The reason being is, is in the time of confusion, for example, somebody may be in in an area where they don't have access to their cell phone 24-7 immediately and time is ticking and you're going to have to pack the house and evacuate even before you're going to be able to get a hold of this other family member. How does that look? What does that look like? So you have to walk and chalk through this evacuation, which is significantly more difficult than you would think. It's not just packing a bunch of stuff in the car and going. It's how do you get a hold of your family members? Where are you going to hook up with them? How are you going to get there? What route are you going to take? Make sure that you have paper maps. If you don't absolutely memorize the area, the reason being is is that you're counting on GPS and you're counting on Google working. 
what if Google's not available? Um, take all of these precautions, walk and talk yourself through that, and then take the necessary supplies where you're going to go. And this comes to the most challenging question in evacuation. What supplies do I take? What do I put in my car? Now, I flippantly said a bit earlier that go right ahead, just, just take whatever you need to get there. And, and that, and in some cases, that's the right answer because your family is going to be different. But let's be, there are some basic requirements that you'll always have to take. And the point being is, is that if you're facing a wildfire and you've seen what's going to happen to houses in a wildfire zone, right? Uh, everything is going to be burned to the ground. You, whatever you leave behind, you're going to lose. Now, everybody will say, well, I'll get a trailer and a U-Haul van. This is not about moving your family. This is about evacuation. That's why it's the most dangerous. You're only going to be taking a very small portion of the possessions that you own, and the rest are going to be permanently forever destroyed. So what matters the most, and is that accessible? Now, you're going to go to an alternate location that you've determined. If that alternate location is the Hilton, where are you going next? What is your next plan? What does your insurance cover? What doesn't it cover? And if you don't have an alternate next place to go to after the Hilton for three weeks, you're now going to, again, you're now back to relying to the government and saying, oh, well, where is FEMA going to put me? Where is Public Safety Canada going to put me? It's somebody else's job to give me a home to stay in because all of my money is run out. I mean, Keep asking yourself that question. Work your way through that whole thing. Come out. The supplies you should need to take are what is going to sustain you for the period of time that you expect to be outside of your house. So if you have to evacuate your residence and you think the threat is going to be a permanent threat, what do you need to permanently relocate? If you think the threat is short notice, most likely short notice, i.e., a contaminated spill or a chemical or something like that is going to disrupt you from your house for a period of time, but you're actually going to get to go back, that's the period of time you have to prepare for. Food, water, shelter, that's basically all it works up to. I mean, you can take all your bushcraft gear and that's everything. Um, if you're um, somebody in the United States of America or a hunter or fisher, you very well want to take uh, the necessary equipment to procure food off the land. But I would always caution against this survivalist mentality of I'm going to run to the hills and be okay. Because I am a survivalist. I am somebody with over 25 years of personal training and education in this. And I give myself no longer than 50% chance of making it more than 40 days. The reason being is, is it's so much more difficult than you imagine it is out there in the woods. Especially during winter time or even during summertime. Uh, it is so, so difficult to survive and procure sufficient amounts of food without years and decades of experience handed down. So unless you are absolutely 100% hardcore and so is everybody with you, that plan will fail. And if you don't believe me, just look at this uh, TV show alone. And I, I use this reference all the time. So you, you get pretty much the top in the early episodes at least the top survival experts around the world that they could find and they give them a choice of 10 tools and they put them in an area where they will survive if they reasonably know what they're doing and most of them don't make it past 30 days and these are the world experts these are the people who train every day or at least in a very reasonable amount of time for survival and bushcrafting and they don't make it past 40 days. So if you're not one of them, if you couldn't go on the alone show right now and survive 100 days in the wilderness with 10 tools, you're not going to do well with your family. Okay, don't, that's not a plan. 
just just shake it out of your head. That is not a plan. You're not going to go into the woods and build a shelter and survive forever and ever. Amen. Because you're not carrying like a year's worth of food in your truck or whatever. So you have to have a realistic plan. A few tools to put a fire on the side of the road if you're stranded. It's never a bad idea. But the point being is, is don't rely on that as your future way of success because it will fail. I don't care who you are and I'll argue it to you blue in the face. Evacuation is the most dangerous because it takes you out of your comfort zone, places you at a fundamentally higher level of risk and a huge amount of uncertainty. The human species and animal does not like uncertainty. Okay, we're a species that likes certain planned things, right? If I told you that uh, you were getting up Monday morning and you didn't know whether your house would still be there at supper time, that would create a little bit of anxiety for you. And that's what most dangerous evacuations do. So I hopefully this uh, look into a review of some of the most important things about the winter that's going to come towards you. Uh, the most likely review of a COVID lockdown and you folks, you, you need to consider that sucker to 2022 and no earlier. Have your planning forecast that far out. Plan for this disruption to stay that long. Anybody who's less than that, uh, I'm sorry, but they're not following science and they're not following logic. I spent 20 odd years in the military doing logistics and supply chain management. I know exactly how long this distribution and management is going to take to vaccinate everybody. Forget the anti-vaxxers, forget all the other difficulties that we will have. I'm talking about the straight out delivery of the vaccine to the population. And then think about most dangerous. That is being evacuated, dislodging from your plan, going at short notice to some alternate location that hopefully you have planned out with what only what you can carry and pack in your car if you haven't pre-positioned equipment and you're moving to a complete level of uncertainty where you don't know if you can work. If you do work online, you don't know if there's going to be any type of internet service or anything like that. It's a massive level of uncertainty that happens when you evacuate, especially if it's like a wildfire or something that is likely to take your home and everything that you have. That is such an incredibly difficult thing to deal with. That's why in an individual emergency preparedness, you have to spend a little bit of time with a cup of coffee, a pen and a Hillroy scribbler and walk your way through what is the most dangerous and most eventful and impactful things that could happen to me and the family and the people that I love and my community around me, and then figure and walk and talk your way through how that is going to look so that when the situation does present itself in the most highly unlikely instance that it does, that you have walked through this. You don't need to run family drills every month on evacuation. You need to have at least have this conversation. And it's not bad in today's world. Listen, you might have laughed at me if I had said that to you in 2019. But in 2020, you're probably drinking your coffee going, yep, yeah, yeah, he's right. Yeah, yeah, we got to do this, right? Because it's 2020. So you have to start thinking about a lot of things that we might not have thought about before. So thank you very much for joining us this week on Inside My Canoe Head. Our next episode next week is going to be a very interesting and fun one. I had a number of requests of people shot uh, me to talk about the transition from a regular suburban individual to a prepper. So for those of you out there who are mildly interested in how you make that change to really dramatically arming yourself up on the self-reliant and self-sufficient scale, 
Stay tuned to us next week on Inside My Canoe Head, where we will talk about how to go prepping hardcore for those who live in suburbia. Thanks again. Uh, reach out to us at our business side of things at Preparedness Labs Incorporated, which is at www.preparednesslabs.ca. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and a whole bunch of other places. Look for Inside My Canoe Head, Inside Canoe Head, Preparedness Labs, or some other thing like that to find me. Thank you very much. My name is Jeff, and have yourself a great and safe week.